the thing is, it's coming. I mean, it works. It's coming. When you see the people we're working with and the names that we're working with, trust us, it's coming. But right. it's not common knowledge. Are you looking to take your performance to the next level? Do you really want to tighten the screws and see how much stronger or fitter you can make your body? If so, you need to look into the science of palm cooling. And if you've never heard of this concept before, don't worry. I've got you covered. Because today's guests are not only obsessed with improving performance, but they are absolutely changing the game with this novel recovery modality. Evie Lyons is the co-founder and CEO of Apex Cool Labs, where she is on a mission to maximize human performance via the science of palm cooling. She spent over 20 years building brand and demand for early and growth stage technology companies, including serving as the chief marketing officer for Tracker, a leading marketing software firm. In her early 30s, Evie traded smoking a pack a day for weightlifting and hasn't looked back. Now she treats life like a sport and trains like an athlete so she can stay in the game as long as possible and inspire more women to lift. Ariel Paul is a PhD physicist, prototyper, and inventor of the Narwhals, an innovative palm cooling device for enhancing performance during training and competition. Prior to co-founding Apex Cool Labs, he was the director of development at PHET Interactive Simulations, a project at the University of Colorado Boulder that creates interactive math and science simulations. In addition to his love of tinkering, Ariel enjoys rock climbing and dreaming up fun ways to communicate science concepts. And in today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the art and science of palm cooling. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, I realized at an early age there was more to training than just training. It was about recovery as well. And while I'd like to think I've explored almost every option available under the sun, sleep, massage, cryotherapy, hydrotherapy, meditation, etc., palm cooling is something that wasn't on my radar until the past year. In today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive and learn not only the science behind how palm cooling works, but in a more practical sense, how we can implement it into our own training as well. The initial research in palm cooling is quite promising, and it appears as though it can help both strength and endurance athletes improve recovery and get more high-quality training done in their workouts. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome new episode with Evie Lyons and Ariel Paul. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work 
and put it all into one massive course. In the CERT, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next complete coach certification launches. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you both on. Would you guys start by just giving us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, my name is Evie Lyons and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Apex Cool Labs. Up until about a year ago, I spent most of my career in marketing and I've been a marketer for software companies for a long time. Always had this passion for fitness and as we'll get into it, sort of through a really interesting exchange on Twitter, ended up taking a hard right down a different path in my life. I love it. Ariel, what about you, man? So my background's in physics. I got my PhD in physics here at the University of Colorado working on lasers and optics stuff. And after that, I worked in a, actually in a shop in the Institute from which I graduated, in which they helped to design and build parts for the scientists there. And then I took a little turn into the education space for, so for about the last 12 years, I've been working with an extraordinary project to the University of Colorado that helps to design and build interactive simulations for teaching science and math. And then about- oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's been my main space is in the education and science communication space. And then for the, about the last two years now, been working on palm cooling and this company, Apex Cool Labs. I love it. I love it. So talk to me, what led both of you into the world of physical preparation? What got you started in all of this? Yeah, I mean, the I think for me, my story was a little bit, it didn't start in the best of places. I used to smoke a pack a day <laughs> and one day decided that I had enough of that. And so I traded smoking for weightlifting and really haven't looked back. I think for me, there was this moment of reckoning where I realized that my ability to become stronger physically was very important to not just my health, but also I guess my mental health and my self-esteem. And I, the more I realized that strength, physical strength sort of improved my ability to be stronger in all aspects of my life, I sort of like never looked back. I love it. I love it. What about you, Ariel? How'd you get into all this, man? Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed lifting or working out on some level ever since high school. And then as you get a little older, I don't know where you're at. I'm about to turn 46, just staying strong, staying fit, eating well. And what's been exciting about this business is this whole other side that we've been introduced to 
amazing people in the strength and conditioning world that help to prepare athletes. So I've obviously never been a strength and conditioning coach, but getting to work with a number of people that just really care about their athletes, their performance, their health, their well-being. And that can be anything from someone like a basketball strength and conditioning coach to we've had amazing opportunities to meet people that are tactical trainers. So people who train firefighters, for instance, in terms of their health, wellness, and ability to perform their job. It's just been really amazing from that point of view. Yeah, that's and awesome. I might add in that one thing that I think is really exciting for sort of the everyday athlete today that really didn't exist even 10-ish years ago is that we have access to people like you who have all this knowledge. We can learn so much through YouTube, through podcasts about how to train, not just exercise. And I think that as sort of an everyday, I consider myself an everyday athlete because I want to be better every day, every year. And I set goals. And of course, I'm not an athlete. I'm not competing in the sport. But to be able to train that way as just an everyday person, I think is incredibly empowering. And I don't think that was around not that long ago. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Like, one of the things that I pitched for a long time, and I feel like I was actually like ridiculed about this early on was I feel like everybody's an athlete and I would have of course like the internet trolls and naysayers like oh I've never played a sport or oh you're 70 year olds you're doing box jumps no maybe not but I do feel like hey athletes are like the pinnacle of like physical prowess in a lot of in a lot of respects and most athletes have a certain degree of mobility strength power conditioning so it's just being more well-rounded versus the way I came up Generally, you were in one of three camps. You were an Olympic lifter, a power lifter, or you were a bodybuilder. And if you didn't fit in one of those very clean delineations, what are you training for? So I love that. I love that. And I think that's such a great way to look at it. We're all training to be athletic and just live longer, healthier lives. So that's awesome. Okay. So one more question. How on earth did you two come together and form a company? Please. I want to hear the whole story. (laughs) I'll start and then pass it off to Ariel. So we both independently did not know each other at the time. We both heard about palm cooling on Andrew Huberman's podcast, The Huberman Lab. And in that podcast, Huberman was interviewing the researchers who led, a researcher who led the the sort of the groundbreaking research on palm cooling at Stanford. And they were talking about these incredible gains that people in eight weeks were more than doubling their pull-up volume, that they were breaking through bench press plateaus. And it was, as someone who cares a lot about their fitness, I was like, I want these gains. How do I access this? And in the podcast, they didn't really talk about how to actually cool your palms and how, what exactly do you need to be doing to get this right? And so afterwards, I attempted to hack it in my garage gym with a bucket of cool water. And I was like, this can't be right. There has to be some better way. And so I actually made a little video of myself doing it and tweeted about this, asking if anybody had any tips. And fortunately, someone did. (laughs) Yeah. So I heard the same podcast probably a little later than Evie. And again, was just got really interested, said, this sounds crazy that you can get these kind of results from cooling your palms, but the science made a ton of sense from what they were saying on the podcast. So I think the very first time I tried something similar to Evie, I put my hands in cool water and I was like, there seems to be something there, but this doesn't seem to be a super effective way to do this. My hands are all wet. (laughs) Right. So 
being a physicist, it's all published research. And what's interesting is on that podcast, they discuss the results, but they don't really talk about what temperatures you need to use, what kind of cooling power you need. So I, I read the studies and then the very first thing I came up with was I went to the local hardware store and I basically made this <laughs> with some plumbing parts. So I had, it's just a loop that allows cool water to circulate through that you can put your hands on. So they have good thermal conductivity and you can cool your palms effectively that way. And I had this going to a recirculating pump just in a big cooler filled with the right temperature water, which is about 55 degrees and was blown away the very first time I tried it. So the very first time I tried it, I did it with a guy I was living with at the time, one of my longtime housemate, and we were doing bench press in my basement and doubled our volume. We were doing five wow. sets of five and we did, and with that last rep being hard to push out and did 10 sets of five. Wow. And was just shocked. I was like, wow, this really works. So I started scouring the internet. I'm like, is anyone else trying to hack this? Because at the time, the Stanford was selling a device called the CoolMit. Uh, a spinoff from Stanford was selling that. And it was not only very expensive, but there was a wait list for it. It was $1,500 at the time. And oh only Olympic or pro athletes could be on that wait list. So that's been opened up more to the public, but still very expensive and not very accessible. So I was like, let me try this myself. And then I found Evie's tweet. So <laughs> I, we started got into a little conversation, like, here's about the temperature. And I know she lived in Colorado. I was like, why don't you come over and I'll build you one of these so you can pick it up from there. <laughs> yeah. So I, my husband and I made the trek. We're about 45 minutes apart and went over to Ariel's house and he has this great home gym. And so I was in the home gym doing push-ups and pull-ups and just more than I had ever done in my entire life. So I was just, I did 10 sets of each. And just what I noticed was there was no, there was like very limited, I was like trail off. You have your first set max, second set a little bit off that third set down a little bit more. And then yep. I just stayed. And this was mm. for both the push-ups and the pull-ups, and I was blown away. And I wasn't feeling pumped out or anything. I was, I felt like I could keep going even more than the 10 sets of each I had done. And so while I was busy doing that, my husband and Ariel soldered me together one of those original <laughs> part ones, which I ended up taking home. And I had to actually, for the first couple of months of palm cooling, I had that thing hooked up to my Yeti that was filled with the right temperature water. And so oh, I knew wow. I'd have to equilibrate that every time. It wasn't too difficult, but obviously it was a very stationary product, but it, it was working. And I proceeded to replicate the studies that Stanford was doing around pull-ups and in eight weeks increased my volume by 50% and kind of broke through that plateau. I'd never really gotten above 10 and got into that 14, I hit the 14 and just, I was shocked. And to be honest, haven't lifted a day without palm cooling since. That's very cool. Yeah. And then I continued to get curious because this was working, right? But yeah, it was big, it was bulky. It was not something you take to the gym. And I like to do some rock climbing and I have some friends that are very good rock climbers and they really care about getting their hands cool and their body cool in between attempts on the rock. So mm -hmm. a lot of climbers will actually outdoors bring little 
battery operated fans to put their hands in front of when it's warm out. So I got really curious just as a passion project, could I make something that you could really take to the gym or take to the crag and it would stay cool. And that's where our current little device came from that we call the narwhals. And so that's a much more portable design that stays cool for hours. So I brought an original set of these to Evie because she had been such a great field tester. And once (laughs) she used those, she was like, you should sell these. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Let's backtrack just for a second here, because I'm sure people are listening to this and they're like, this sounds awesome, but we're all scientists, right? At some level, like, how does this stuff work? And you guys were very nice, sent me a bunch of the research and it sounds like they're, oh, we think it's this or we think it's this. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Why do you guys think it works? Yeah, there's two main effects, right? And the let's just start out with a little bit of physiology that in the palms of our hands and actually in our cheeks and soles of our feet, but we'll focus on our palms, we have direct connections between arteries and veins. Yep. So normally you've got arteries, go to capillaries, go to tissue, go back to capillaries, go back to veins. But that means that because you have these direct connections, the exchange of blood in your palms is extraordinarily efficient. Mm. And the research suggests that when you're exercising, when you're warm, your palms can have about 10 times the blood flow of other skin areas. So what you're really doing when you're cooling your palms is you're cooling your blood. Yep. That's going to have two main effects. The first is that as you cool your blood, you're going to bring your core body temperature back towards baseline. So when you're exercising, when you're working out, when you're competing, your core body temperature is rising, causing you to sweat. Core body temperature and heart rate are highly correlated. So you're able to cool your core body temperature more towards baseline. You're able to recover your heart rate, reduce your sweating rate, reduce your electrolyte and perspiration and water loss, all those effects. The second effect, which is claimed by the research and makes a lot of sense is as you're doing something like a set of push-ups or bench press till failure, locally, your muscles are getting very hot. All of your nervous system apparatus for sensing temperatures actually on the exterior body, on your skin, you have no internal nervous system apparatus for sensing the temperature inside your muscles. And your muscles, your fascia, your skin, they're all very good insulators. So that as that heat builds up locally in your muscles, there's an enzyme called muscle pyruvinate kinase, which is involved in the local production of ATP. So at a local muscular level, you basically start to run out of energy when that enzyme in, in gets exposed to enough heat that it starts to deform. And there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is as sort of a safety mechanism to stop cellular damage and your muscles getting too hot. That enzyme starts to deform, shuts down that production of ATP. And that is part of that feeling of failing on a set is that Mm. production of ATP goes away. If you can cool, you're going to bring that production of ATP back much faster. That's wow. Dude, I wish as I was reading these articles, like scientific research isn't the most like exciting stuff to read anyways, but you just described it so succinctly. Like I wish I would have just read your definition and then read the article because that was so much better. I appreciate it. Yeah, we've, we've tried to, <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time because we were at the gym basically saying cooling your palms cools your blood which helps bring your core body temperature down, which reduces right. muscle fatigue. That's like our elevator pitch. <laughs> Just the fact that there's like a central theory and then a more local theory makes sense. One of the other things that I found really interesting as I'm diving into this and I'm reading the research 
is that a lot of times when you find certain modalities, they're like, once this is amazing for strength athletes, or this is amazing for endurance athletes, but it seems like palm cooling works for both. So would you maybe give us some insights as to why you think that is? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really goes back to the two different systems that palm cooling is um, having an impact on and they're connected, but separate, right? So Mm -hmm. you're cooling your blood, which is your core body temperature and your heart rate are very highly correlated. And so when you're thinking about an endurance athlete, who's perhaps doing interval training, focused on VO2 max training, for example, in that rest period, if you can recover even a little bit better, you can push harder on that next interval. And just from that system alone, you're getting an advantage. When it comes to strength training, you're not it depends what you're doing. If you're doing right. Bulgarian split spots or you're doing really heavy deadlifts, you might be <laughs> really out of breath and your heart rate might be skyrocketing. That's where you have perhaps even more of that local muscle energy or local muscle heat building up that is preventing the muscle from producing the energy required to get that quality contraction that you need for those sets. And so I think you have a little bit of both going on. Like the endurance athlete is clearly using their muscles to push on that all out sprint, for example, but they're probably mostly feeling that, that heart rate recovery, yeah. helping them. Whereas the resistance training folks are going to really experience this, you know, what people describe as this freshness, this like first, second set freshness that just stays with you into your sixth, eighth, 10th set. So how far you want to push that? There's probably a sweet spot there, but I think that's why, that's why it's been credible for really all types of athletes. And there's been a number of studies on endurance sort of efforts, as well as there was an interesting rowing study not that long ago as well, um, where folks were really going all out and continuously cooling and by continuously cooling, able to do more work. Very cool. Now I'm just thinking about, we've all had that experience. And I was talking about this. One of the guys that I work with is a professional race car driver. And so he had uh, a lot of upper body in his workouts just because there's no power steering in these cars. So it's incredibly demanding on the upper body. And so he was excited. I had chin-ups in his program and it said as many as possible. And he said, how many do you think I can get? I said, I don't know, 10, 15. And he said, I think I can do 20. I said, that's great, but just watch this drop off. Right. So I'm just envisioning that first set, he got 15 and then it's 10 and then eight. So I'm just trying to envision how that would work. If we've got started to incorporate stuff like this into our workouts, how much more volume he could accrue in a set because it was crazy. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the exact number, but like the increases that people were seeing in their chin up volume over the course of a certain number of weeks was absolutely mind blowing. I was shocked that they could get that many more reps in a chin up in that short period of time. Yeah. And it's absolutely works. It's shocking. (laughs) Huh? Huh. I mean, okay. Abby can tell you about, we can tell you about both of our experiences. We experimented with this when we were first doing this. And that's right. really where the gains happen because of the added volume you can do. Yeah. Yeah. In this study, the reported results were on average, 144% increase in pull-up volume over six weeks. And what they were doing was training twice. They were training pull-ups twice a week. Each session had 10 sets until failure. Um, each set taken to failure. So that's a lot of volume. When I first went out to do it, I'm 
I have a job. I have a job. I have, I'm busy. I brought that to, I did it once a week. I did, I did do 10 sets the first time I did it and I did it for eight weeks and my volume increased by 50% in that time. So I was doing half as much basically as the study, right? but the, the results were you know on par with that. Um, over, we've done this now a couple of cycles ourselves just on pull-ups because pull-ups are just such an empowering move for anyone, especially women. And I think Ariel is a big climber and obviously pulling strength is key in climbing. So we've done it a lot and we've decided that sort of realistic sweet spot is around six to eight sets where you're really getting the, the benefit of palm cooling and that extra volume you can build up, but you're not like bored to death doing pull-ups for an hour. And just burning yourself on the movement, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can't do 10 sets forever. One, one thing I want to tell everybody that's listening at home as well. I will make sure I put all the links to this stuff in the show notes because look, I'm as much a skeptic as anybody, but I mean, I read the research myself now, unless there's research flaws and somebody that reads research for a, a professional hobby, if they can find it and pick it out and point it out to me, that would be great. But I mean, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And I think it's worth reading and learning more about. Now I will say this, one of the downsides I think to some of the early research was how they were comparing palm cooling to performance enhancing drugs or steroids, which is the second I start reading that, I'm like, is this really how they're like drawing this distinction? Cause I didn't think it was the best. So I'm interested in your guys' thoughts. Do you feel like that comparison has like harmed the public's perception of palm cooling as a whole, just because it was like tied or linked together? I mean, the simple answer is absolutely. I think that's just not a good way to approach. That's clickbait. That's yeah. getting people to think. And unfortunately, when you say something like that, for most people, it doesn't pass the smell test. They go, right. look, bodybuilders, if this were as good as steroids, would be juicing up and cooling their palms like for years, <laughs> right? Why haven't right. they been doing that? And it has, I mean, the effects really are hard to believe in the people we've worked with that you see the advantage they gain. And the proof is in the pudding. We work with a number of professional sports teams already early on in building this company, and they're not going to use stuff unless it has yeah. an effect for them. We were just talking to an NBH strength and conditioning coach who started using these recently with his team. And he's look, player buy-in is what it's all about. It can be the best thing in the world. If the players don't, feel an effect from it and don't think it's useful, it ain't going to be gonna on the sideline. It's just not going to no. happen. So that's a big thing. But, you know, where they were trying to get to was this idea of the recovery benefits, right? I mean, steroids yep. on, on their own don't really make you stronger. You've got to go do the work, right? But they allow you to recover much faster, these kinds of effects. So it has a parallel there, but I think it's just a bad way to describe it because the reality is, even if I'm able to do a ton of volume and get stronger, which I have been able to do using this, if I were juicing, <laughs> mm. I would look bigger than I am now. It's just, right. and, and that's the thing in the public's perception. When you say better than steroids, it's, oh, you mean I can palm cool and look bigger than Arnie? Yeah, no. That's a bad analogy because of the way people think about steroids. Now, people like Lance Armstrong also use steroids and they don't look jacked AF, right? Right. But, <laughs> But that's not the public's perception of what we mean when we'd say something like better than steroids. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating, I'm sure. And you're absolutely right. I have numerous friends that work 
in pro sports across all the different sports. And they have all talked about like the closet. They just call it the closet where like all the bad tech and all the bad equipment and investments go to live when they realize this just doesn't do what we thought it would. Right. Or we haven't found value and utility in this. So like you alluded to, if people aren't using it and if they're not getting benefits from it, it's going to end up in the closet and nobody's going to want to use it. Now, one thing I'm really intrigued by, and you mentioned this idea of like pro sports and using it in game. How do you guys see palm cooling impacting sports in the future as an in-game modality, right? Because this could be the best of both worlds. These guys are gassed or girls, they're gassed. They just ran five, six minutes straight. They get a little spurt on the bench. Palm cooling goes on. You guys see this happening in the future? I mean, that would be pretty cool, right? Absolutely. We often say that in five years, palm cooling is going to be as ubiquitous as electrolytes and that no one's really going to be training or competing without it. Once you realize the power of proper hydration and what it can do for you and how you perform, why you wouldn't compete without it. And when you see the benefit of palm cooling, it that ability to recover your heart rate to which is in turn is causing you to perspire less, lose less electrolytes in, in the first place. You just have so much more energy. And that's what the athletes who are using it today are telling us that they are remaining stronger and having more energy throughout their game, even into that fourth quarter or that third period. And it's pretty, pretty incredible. I think that at the end of the day, it's really taking advantage of a naturally occurring system in your body and offloading that heat just the same way you're putting water back in. Yeah. And I think that when you look across the spectrum of sport, there are some sports that are going to be more amenable to this than others in the sense of if you are a basketball player, like we look at basketball and go, logistically, this is just a perfect fit. It's perfect, there's yeah. natural timeouts. There's time on the bench. There's media timeouts. There's a lot of good opportunities and your hands are not taped, gloved, these other things. So really nice fit. Something like Major League Soccer, which we're about to get some involvement with, a little trickier during game because just the nature of substitution during that game, there are some opportunities, but it's not something, it's not at that rate at which basketball. And for yeah. instance, hockey has been interesting. That was one of the first sports that really came to us. And believe it or not, the goalies is the place where really the teams. Yeah. So if you think about hockey and we hadn't thought about it that much before <laughs> this, uh, when you're the goalie, they're wearing 40 to 50 pounds of gear in the NHL, and they are the one player not coming off the ice. They're not getting shift breaks, and they are moving, and they're often big guys. Bigger guys take up more of the net. So yeah. these are large men that are taking up a ton of gear. They're having massive problems with thermoregulation, and the coaches are trying to do everything they can in the period breaks because they're like, we can pump them full of electrolytes. We can try and feed them. We can do these things, and they're still cramping. They, they, yeah. I mean, you see these guys, they are just drenched when they come off the ice. So that's a, a really interesting place where they're using it during the period breaks, and you could see that as that gets adopted more, even using it during the shift mechanics that are happening, people cooling between the shifts. But I think there's a lot of sports that are amenable to it. And there's some where it's going to be more in training and a little less in competition, just because of the nature of substitution in the sport. Yeah. Now, I when we talked prior to the show, just the NBA just seems, or just basketball as a whole, right? Like you said, it's so timely in the sense that you come off, you have this dedicated period. And I'm thinking too, especially not just in regular season games, but in playoff games, 
Like everything gets winnowed down. Everything is very tight. You may want to sub a guy 30 seconds before there's a TV timeout. So now he's going to get three to five minutes rest instead of a minute or whatever, however it ends up being, right? You can go palm cooling in between and really help these people recover, regenerate faster. Now they're going to be fresher when they go back out there. So even though they're not getting a lot of total time to rest, if the quality of said time is better, now you're seeing some nice changes. So that's very cool. Very cool. Okay. So I have a super random question. And this actually comes from one of my athletes today because I told him, oh, what are you doing a podcast on? We're talking about palm cooling. And so then he wanted the whole diatribe. I'm like, just listen to the show. But he did make a great question that I didn't see in some of the research that I was looking at. Have you guys looked at this and how it impacts just like sleep and recovery as a whole? Like doing this before bed or anything like that? I'm sure you've thought about it, but have you tested it at all? There's some anecdotal evidence in that realm. What we have tested it with, where we need to actually get a bit more scientific, but we have some, if you will, anecdotal testing, I'll let Evie explain because she brought it to our practice was down regulation. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're definitely using it when it comes to down regulations that you've just finished your game or your workout, giving yourself at three, even three minutes. I'm, I, I listen to a lot of Andy Galpin, give me three, give me just even three minutes. And I'm like, I can give you right. three. Right? And so even three, three to five minutes of breathing. And then we were thinking the whole point of this is about helping your body switch from that sympathetic to parasympathetic state and bringing your heart rate down. Palm cooling is bringing your heart rate down. So pairing the two together really has some interesting synergistic benefits. And and we would love to, to do more actual research on this, but it definitely gives you, I think it turbocharges that recovery post post training. Yeah. In terms of sleep, I think that is something that really hasn't been looked at. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. It's funny because I say the exact same thing as Andy Galpin. I don't know okay. if I said it before him or after. Okay. We'll, we'll, agree, we'll agree to tie. Uh, <laughs> but no, I've talked about this for years. I've got this R7 kind of system that I use to write programs. And the seventh R, the last R is recovery. Okay. Mm. So I ask, hey, give me three minutes at the end of your session, right? Like crocodile breathe, stretch, foam roll, like anything to kickstart that recovery process and to activate that PNS, your parasympathetic nervous system before you walk out of the gym is going to be valuable. So that would fit right yeah, in. You there. saw Abby's ears perk up because she's all about breath right now. She's like, what's crocodile breathing? Yeah. <laughs> what's crocodile breathing? Yeah. Oh, you basically, I have a video on it. I'll link oh that God. in the show notes too, yeah. and I'll send it to you. But literally you lay prone, right? So you're laying face down. I'll generally put an Airx pad underneath my abdominal wall make a little diamond, put your head down, right? So your forehead rests in the little diamond and then you just breathe and focus the breath into the lower back. Cause a mm-hmm. lot of us have that big, like anterior pelvic tilt or orientation, big lumbar curve. So the pad basically works like abs. It blocks the airflow into the front, drives it into the back side of your body, just really helps you unwind at the mm-hmm. end of a session. So Oh, All right. Yeah, we'll check that out for it's a sure. Good one. It's a good one. I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link. Because, yes, I just shot a YouTube video on some of my favorite breathing resets and activities. Nice. I will See? consume that. Yes, I'll send it your way. I'll send it your way. Okay. So to put a ribbon on this part of the show, you guys talked about how when you were starting off, you had 
no clue. Like, how do I do this? What temperature? All that. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about the protocols that you guys are using? And just in general, like somebody's brand new to this, they're super skeptical, right? Because, oh, nobody's going to add twice as much pull-up volume and nobody's going to compare this to steroids, right? For the super skeptical person out there, what can they expect to see benefit-wise the first couple of times they do it? Yeah, so let's first talk just the secret sauce of palm cooling, right? Love what it. are those parameters? Because everyone should know them if you want to try to hack it even. The first is you want to be holding something that's the right temperature. And so what do we mean by the right temperature? Because of that system where we're really trying to cool the blood, we don't want to vasoconstrict. We want to hold something that's cool, not cold. And for most people, that's going to be something that's a, between about 50 and 55 degrees Fahrenheit. That's going to be about the right temperature where heat flows from hot to cold. So you want to be holding something as cold as you can without it being too cold. And that's going to be in about that range. The next thing is you want to be holding something that has what we call good thermal conductivity. And I won't get too into that, but the idea would be if you go into your fridge is going to have multiple things that are about this. They're all the same temperature. Your refrigerator stays at about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, but try touching the plastic walls. Try touching a milk bottle or like a paper bottle in there. Try touching a glass bottle. Try touching an aluminum bottle. They will all feel different temperatures. And that's because of their thermal conductivity. Things with good thermal conductivity are going to feel colder because they're removing heat from your hand faster. Your temperature perception is not just about how warm or cold something is. It's also about how fast the heat is flowing from your hand. One of the examples I give is the reason you get in a sauna and it's wood is because if you got into a metal sauna, it would not be comfortable. You want something with poor thermal conductivity to be sitting on so right. that it's not burning you. And right. So you want something about the right temperature, good thermal conductivity, and ideally moving the heat continuously away from your hands so you're not forming a thermal barrier. So one of the things that we wrote a blog post about is if you really wanted to just try to hack this, the easiest thing to do would be, it's not going to work perfectly, but you should get some effect, is go get a single wall aluminum water bottle. You can pick a decent one up for about $10. You can even find water bottles these days that are made out of, we can buy a water bottle that's a drinking bottle that's just a one-time use aluminum bottle that's thin walled. Fill it with about the right temperature water and when you're using it, shake it. And that shaking is going to allow that water to continuously pull the heat away from your hands. That's going to give you a decent benefit. And what you should see is if you did something like pull-up cell failure, you should see if you cool between for a, between about two to three minutes between sets, you should see less of a tail off. That's the main effect someone's going to see the very first time they use it is less of a tail off. And the amount of time you hold is important. You're not going to get much benefit if you don't hold something at the right temperature for about two to three minutes. About a minute and a half is getting towards about the, the baseline that you need to start seeing an effect. And another important thing is don't squeeze. If you wow. squeeze, you vasoconstrict, you hold, right? You're just trying to hold something and move that heat away. Not people have an instinct to like, Oh, if I hold it harder, I'll remove more heat, but that's actually counterproductive. So don't squeeze about 50 to 55 degrees, good thermal conductivity and ideally moving the heat away. Yeah. I wrote down temp, thermoconductivity and time. Yeah. Three T's. That's at least a good place to start, right? And don't yeah. squeeze. Yes. But the S doesn't fit into my <laughs> three T's. Okay. 
this is perfect. Now, what I'd love to do is just pivot slightly here and talk a little bit of business because, again, as we talked about before the show, there's a lot of people that listen that, look, if you're a trainer or a coach, you're always selling. You're always marketing at some level, right? Whether you own a business or not, you're selling your services, your skill sets. So obviously, you're both into training and getting the most out of your body. So how did you take this idea, right, in this random, like, Twitter conversation that you guys had and use it to build a business from the ground up? Yeah, we often talk a lot about how we feel fortunate to have met at the time we met, at the age we were when we met, because both of us have had very unique experiences, professional experiences, life experiences that I think have built towards this ability to I guess have a complete tool set, if you will, to build this business. And we probably wouldn't have been there had we met 20 years ago. (laughs) And Ariel has incredible expertise when it comes to building, prototyping, obviously physics and science. And I'll let him speak more to that. But from my side, I'm... When I look back, I'm really grateful for all of the random, what felt random at the time experiences I had. And, and I think that the, like just having understood how to market a product, even though in the past I've primarily marketed software, I understand how to go from an idea to bringing something to market. I've worked with really small companies and from the early days up until sort of a growth stage, if you will, to speak sort of startup language. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence to say, okay, I've never brought a physical device to market, but I understand what it takes to build a brand, to build an audience, to connect with your community. And, and so I think we just, for better or worse, at least I'll, I'll speak for myself, Ariel, you can chime in, but for better or worse, I look at most things in life and think I can figure that out. Um, yes. Even though I have perhaps no sound reasoning to, <laughs> <laughs> to base that off of, but I'm like, obviously we can build this company. And, and so anyway, I think that type of attitude of there's nothing we can't figure out coupled with maybe 40 some years of having figured things out and having that confidence is what at least gave me the confidence to take that, the leap and leave the job to do this. Yeah. I would say for me, the things are, we've been lucky in at many stages. And when I brought that initial set to Evie to go back to that and she tried them out and said, we should sell this. I was like, look, I'm a physicist. I don't know how to build an e-commerce website. I just don't have any experience (laughs) in that realm. And I wouldn't have felt confident that, I'd be able to do all that on my own. And I think it would have been a drag to do on my own. Yeah. So I said, maybe we should work on this together. And we're both careful people, even though we're optimistic. We spent a lot of time basically walking and talking, seeing if we were philosophically aligned, seeing if we could work together. And then as we sort of built the initial website and started to get orders from these people like NHL strength and conditioning coaches, And we start very early on. We were very lucky. We got connected to a really amazing movement coach. If you've ever, he's he's a little less well-known. He doesn't have a huge social media following, but he has an influential one. This guy named Austin Einhorn, who Hmm. runs something called Apiros. And he works with a lot of professional Olympic athletes and is well-connected in the strength and conditioning world and movement world. And a lot of our 
initial customers came through him and him talking a little bit about the product and how he was using it. So we've, we just sort of a lot of doors started to open for us, which made us realize, I think we both took the full leap. We both had full-time jobs and we both took the full leap in July. We took it somewhat cautiously. We didn't just like sure. first day, start the website, quit our jobs, go all in. We start right. to see that there's a there there. There's some traction. And the traction is with a caliber of people we did not expect. We thought we'd be selling to the us's of the world, the everyday athletes, the people who were interested in bumping up their fitness, who wanted to try this new technique. And so that's really how it started it was a little more organically. We put this kind of out to the world. We saw what was happening. And these days we're going full bore. We're redesigning the product. We're doing all kinds of interesting, fun stuff. So. Yeah. But I think that's how most sound long-term businesses start, right? It's a, it's an organic thing versus look, it not to say you can't be successful with a ton of money and investor <laughs> capital and all that. Look, there's plenty of companies that have done well with that, but I think there's a lot of like smaller businesses that have started in this grassroots organic fashion and then just built the old school way, right? Like trust-based marketing and meeting the right people. And you alluded to luck. I do believe there is an element of luck. Generally, Absolutely. you prepare yourself for it, right? And you set yourself up for success. But Heavy, one of the things that you mentioned was confidence. Yeah. And I'm reminded of this sports writer. His name's Bill Simmons. He covers basketball. I don't know if he still does. But in basketball, he used to talk about players that have irrational confidence. The guy that's going to miss 10 straight shots, but he's going to take an 11th, right? Because he knows he's going to make the next one. I also think there's an element of that, of just being successful in life. And you don't always have it. I don't think some people are born with it. I was not. But you get to a point where it's just, look, I'm just, I'm going to fail and I'm going to keep getting up and eventually I'm going to figure it out. I think there's something to that. Irrational confidence. Remember that. Absolutely. And I think there's many quotes out there about you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You treat success and failure as the two imposters that they are. And I have, I do struggle with that one because I'm like, success does feel a lot better than failure. Yes, it does. Yeah. But that, that's one thing that I have learned a lot. Like going, I led a marketing team. Like I, I, I had a lot of responsibility, but it is next level when you start a business and you are a co-founder and there is nobody who's going to make this successful except Ariel and I, like the buck yeah, stops with yeah. us. There's nothing else. And so when that happens, everything feels a little bit more intense. And I'll admit that in the first couple of months of doing this, I started to feel very overwhelmed, not with everything that there was to do, but with this, I was so happy doing this that all of a sudden I became fearful of losing it. Yeah, and yeah, I, like, sure. I don't want to screw up. And I think what I've really, there, there's a lot of lessons I've learned in the short period of time we've been doing this full time, but just generally, I am blown away by the number of successes and failures we experience on a daily basis. And so it does get to that point where what really matters is taking the steps forward. Just keep going forward with confidence because you're going to have, oh, we had a win here. Oh, we lost that. We had a win here. We had a loss, but it's all moving in the right direction. So I think that that has been, I think, a bit surprising for me. Yeah. And also, I think you, I'm sure you know this, Mike, that all the great, especially the basketball players, Michael Jordan, I just listened to a podcast with Steph Curry. They talk about being present in the moment yeah. and we've had learning to enjoy the process yes. is it makes it really fun instead of worrying too much about something that happened or too much of what's going to happen. If you stay a little 
more present in the process, it definitely goes better. So Absolutely. And that's where it's cliche talking about enjoying the process. But if you don't, I think you're really going to struggle long term, right? Because the outcomes don't always fall exactly the way you'd like, or they don't always fall in the timelines that you would like. But if you enjoy the process and you trust the fact that, hey, over time, the analogy I always use is training, rehab, life, it kind of the stock market, it all works, right? As long as the long-term trend is up, the day-to-day is going to look like this, right? But as long as the long-term trend is going up, you're generally doing okay. So something else I wanted to ask you guys about, and Ariel, this might be a better question for you. Palm cooling can be like, I mean, if you really get in there and you're reading the research, it can be nerdy, science-heavy, science-laden, but you do such a good job of explaining it. So how did you go about finding your rap for that? Or how did you go about making this very science-heavy, nerdy topic and making it easily digestible to the people you're talking to? I mean, I'm very lucky in that I've been teaching and tutoring physics for a quarter century. <laughs> so, no, I mean, <laughs> right. literally, though, you, I think if you want to understand a topic, you have to be able to explain it in simple terms. And you got to meet people where they're at. And a lot of the work that I've done on the scientific communication side is a lot about what do you understand? Let me bring some examples or explanations that meet you at your level or that are are everyday. I mean, I love that refrigerator example because it's surprising to people. You go, that's all the same temperature, but it feels different. And I think when you can find those analogies and find those examples, that really helps connect people and make it feel... I don't ever want, I mean, my whole business for the last many years has been making science not feel exclusionary, but making it feel inclusionary. We want informed people. We want informed citizens. Evie and I, Evie just finished this book. I started reading it, Outlived by Peter Atiyah. It's it's his number one bestseller. And that, yeah. yeah, just you want this information that can help people feel accessible and not just accessible, but actionable to people. Yes. So... I think just trying to find ways that work when you're communicating with people about different concepts and not getting too academic. Abby, anything you want to add to that? Because I feel like you do a good job of explaining this stuff too. I think that is a testament to Ariel's ability to (laughs) to teach me all about science. I'd say like once a week, there's some sort of company break to understand the physics of and I've learned a lot. I, when we, it was funny when we first met, I was like, I, I love weightlifting, but I cannot explain to you levers. Like I get, I generally get it, but there are like different classes. And so like, he's done a great job of breaking things down and we have a a whiteboard in our office. And many a times there's a a little whiteboard session to understand something. I think at the end of the day, I, I am really grateful for people like you who put out content that explain subjects, right? There's just so you can just go learn anything about anything now from world-class practitioners, from world-class scientists, you can find that information. And I I think that is just incredible. Yeah. I just remember doing the master's thesis research and having to actually go into a physical library, find physical journals with a whole bunch of dimes and scanning the pages to make, not even scanning, making copies of pages. So I would have reference materials. If you're listening to this and you haven't had to do that, consider yourself lucky. Okay. One more. I'm going to leave this kind of open-ended, but since you guys have merged and created Apex Cool Labs, 
What are some of the biggest issues or roadblocks that you've suffered so far? Yeah, I mean, we have a couple high class problems okay. that we often talk about, which is when you're, as I've learned. So one of the things I've learned from Evie is a lot of the marketing lingo. So I've been, I've yeah. gotten a little side lesson in, in the three letter acronyms in marketing, but right. Product market fit is like the key, right? You have, you want to find that for your product. And what's interesting is if we have any big horizon issue, it is where do we focus? Is it basketball? Is it firefighting, which is this amazing use case that we have a lot of traction in? Is it hockey? What is the right place to focus? Because if you don't focus, you're not really getting anything done. You're too dilute, right? You do have yeah. to choose a focus. So we definitely have some questions around where's the place to focus for product market fit. We also, right now, we hand build these at my house. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yes. We're moving that. We're, we're moving along towards getting that towards contract manufacturing. And then I think the big thing really is it's, there's, I thought it was going to be skepticism and we haven't actually run into that much skepticism. It's more, most people just don't know about this. There's certain people who've heard about it and have used it or tried it in one way or another, but it just seems the science and the ability and the gains have not been well communicated to the public or if they were done in that it's better than steroids and people sort of blew it off. So it, it just, right. the thing is it's coming. I mean, it works. It's coming. When you see the people we're working with and the names that we're working with, trust us, it's coming, but right. it's not common knowledge. Yeah. So that's a great point. And it's something I don't think most people recognize is if you're marketing a thing that somebody knows they need, it's so much easier. But people haven't heard of this and they don't know they need it. So there's this education component that goes on. So there's like this extra step or this extra barrier to selling something. So like I deal with that with my certification a little bit because people assume, oh, well, I have a training certification. Like I know everything there is to know about training. And most people don't realize, oh, wow. Oh, you have a degree and you have your certification from NSCA, NASM, ACE, whatever. That's great. But there's so many more levels to this right now. What do you really want to dive into? So you almost have to educate people that no, there's more to this than just what you already know. And it's the same thing for you guys. Hey, you want to recover faster. Have you heard of palm cooling? No, let me tell you about it. Now, let me tell you about the product that I have that will help you with the thing that you didn't know you needed five minutes ago. So I get it. It's hard, but man, I think you guys are set up for success. And like you said, you just got to figure out who do you really want to hone in early on? Because that's another great lesson. If you're listening to this, if you are marketing to everybody, you're marketing to nobody. Your marketing should be polarizing almost to some extent, right? Because the great thing about a magnet, I'm sure Ariel would do a much better job of explaining this than me, but one side attracts and the other pushes away. So you want to attract more of those ideal clients. So I would just ahead. add to that, that not, not only is, you know, you think about your marketing as being very specific and speaking to a specific type of person. But I think another thing that as a business owner, you should feel is it, I find it stressful to think about all the markets we're not going after because we're going to go focus on this one sport, for example. Sure. And that feeling is very uncomfortable. We all like you're going to feel like oh, I'm missing out on something. But really, when you focus and you can own something, 
the results are incredible. And I learned yeah. this, I learned this as a as a software marketer, and it's something that we talk about daily here. But it's like it, it should feel uncomfortable when you focus because you know what you're giving up. But when you do focus, oh, and if you can lean into that and truly do it, that that's when you start to see ex- very exciting growth. Yeah, I love it. Okay, guys, big question time and. Evie, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Ariel. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Evie Lyons and Ariel Paul one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, so I know we talked earlier about enjoying the process, and I certainly think you should, but I would actually rewrite that to telling myself, for sure, absorb the process. I think Mm. that I spent so much time being like worried and frantic and anxious about getting to the next stage of my life, the next stage of my career, that I don't think I fully grasped everything that I could have been learning or do I remember everything that I could have been learning? And when I think back, I've done some incredible things. I have spent two years in a jungle working in the field. I have lived in, I went to a country and lived there for four years. I didn't speak the language when I first got there. I learned it. Like I did really hard things and I can't quite remember all the amazing lessons I learned at the time. And I remember living those experiences in a very anxious state of, I just got to learn this language. I just got to get to that next level. I got to get that job. I got to do that. And, and I will, all my life, I wanted to start a company. (laughs) And now I have. And so like, it really is this like feeling of elation, but I look back and I think, ah, man, I wish I had captured everything better. And so the way I'm turning that into a lesson for myself now is I am writing down everything we're learning right now. I am taking notes on what it's like to start a company because I know in a year I will not remember the trials and tribulations or even the the wins and all of the, the good parts. I think I'll forget and I'll just be focused on what's next. So. I love it. I love it. I've never heard somebody say it like that, but that's advice I give to basically every young coach is train everybody early on. Like you guys know, at some point you have to niche down, right? You can start off and do whatever, but at some point you niche down. But I tell every young trainer or coach, train whoever you can. And that's great advice to stack on top of it. Don't just train them, absorb what you're learning from them, because ultimately that will make you a better coach in the long haul. Love it. All right, Ariel, what about you, man? This is going to get a little deep and personal. Okay. For me, I'm probably what would be diagnosed these days as functionally autistic or Aspergian, especially when I was younger. And I've been very lucky that I've had friends throughout my life that risked the capital of their friendship to be like, you can't act like that. You can't say those kinds of things. And I've been very defensive at times of my life. And these days I am better at that. I still have probably more trouble than I should <laughs> saying I'm wrong. Sure. But I would have gone back and said, those people in your life that are willing to call you out, that are willing to give you a tough opinion, keep those people close and listen yeah. to them. I've been lucky that those people have stuck by my side or remained my friends, but I could have easily lost some of them by getting defensive. So I think by recognizing, look, there's people in your life that care about you, that sometimes really good friends tell you things you do not want to hear. Yes. <laughs> and you can get into a place where you push them away and 
people who don't care about you that much don't bother telling you that stuff. They're like, oh, they just leave you alone. So I think that general lesson of trying not to be defensive, trying to admit you're wrong, trying to listen to those people that are trying to help you would have, if I'd learned those lessons earlier, I would have had a smoother time in a lot of relationships, interactions, you name it. So sure. No, that's great advice, man. That's awesome. Okay, guys, last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So for you, I have five questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. Number one, and you guys can both answer this one. What are you most excited about in your business right now? We just started working with a product design company and taking this from something that started as just a passion project to this just beautiful consumer ready device that, that takes that hard work and puts it to that next level. That's extremely satisfying to me because having your device in the hands of professional athletes at the highest level is super cool. And then getting that's happening and then getting to see that to sort of make that next step. That's just really neat to take, uh, have other people and their expertise be brought in to something you've worked so hard on. That's crazy exciting to me. Very cool. Evie, anything you want to add there? I mean, that that's definitely what we're most excited about these days. Yeah. It's exciting. I love it. Okay. Number two, how many iterations of the narwhals have there been? So I saw the OG original prototype and we've seen where you're at now. How many steps were there in between? Yeah. So the very first one looked even uglier than, than that oh, Nic nicely okay. soldered together one. That's like really V 1.1. Okay. <laughs> and then it took me a ton of time to figure out the right material to use for the internals of the narwhals. As you see them today, that was many months of playing with different materials in my freezer with thermocouples and checking melting and all this playing around. <laughs> And yeah, I would say there's been at least to what I have now, what we have now, at least probably seven or eight true iterations to get to wow. the design you see. And then there will be this ninth iteration coming. So Wow. That's cool. Okay. Number three. Now I've got one for each of you. Okay. Evie, super random. What kind of cigarettes did you smoke <laughs> and how did you end up quitting? I, I smoked a couple different brands, but I would say I was pretty loyal to Camel Lights. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had some friends that were big on the camels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not proud of it, but I am proud of quitting. I, yeah. Well, I that's ultimately... where I'm getting with this. Yes. <laughs> yes. You can make a joke of it. No, but tell, tell us legitimately, yeah. like, how did you quit? Was it just, I'm done or? It, you would think that, of course, I was worried about my health. I was definitely worried about looking old and ugly from smoking, smoking induced wrinkling. And I somehow was always active even as a smoker. So I wasn't like into weightlifting, but I would run, like I did things. So I, I didn't have this like pull of, I'm ashamed to say it. It wasn't really health that got me to quit. What got me <laughs> to quit was the, my extreme desire to be hyper productive at all times. And okay. when you're a smoker, and you're in the middle of some flow state and you're writing this like great blog post or whatever it is you're doing. And all of a sudden you're like, I need a cigarette and you have to walk away from your work yeah. or you're in an airport and all you can think about is getting out of that building to have a cigarette and you can't take in anything that's going on. And you're just like, that's all you can think about. I just got sick of being controlled by this external thing that was pulling me away from the stuff I love to do 20 yeah. times a day. Yeah. That's obscene. 
And ultimately that's what I just got so frustrated that I was like, it's done. And I ended, I did quit cold Turkey. I know that's not for everybody, but it worked for me and was certainly a rough couple of weeks, but sure. The key is to approach each for me. It was to approach each craving as one moment in time. I wasn't Mm. trying to quit forever. I was just trying to get through that one craving and that lasts like a minute. Yeah. Wow. I'm just thinking too, like the logistics of that. I guess I've never thought of it like that. I don't know how long it takes to smoke a cigarette. Let's say it's 10 minutes, but if you're doing that 20 times a day, dude, that's three hours a day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That you can't, I don't know, maybe you can multitask. And if you're smoking indoors, you can continue to write your blog and set it on the ashtray. I don't know, but no, like, I mean, that's and, incredible to think about the, the amount of time that would consume from your life. Yeah. And that's what got to me. And Ariel will probably laugh because I'm like, I, I, I'm all about productivity. Even on our right. best day, I'm like, oh, that it's was so me. on brand. It's so on brand for every reason <laughs> to quit. Yes. I love it though. I'm the same way. I'm like that hyper productive. Yeah. How can I be more productive type? So, well, yeah. good for you. I'm Thank impressed. That's very you. cool. Okay. Ariel, what's your favorite place to rock climb and why? Yeah. I mean, I mainly rock climb in, in the gym, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, I am fairly introverted, but it is, I think, one of the best social places for an introvert because if mm. you want, to focus on your climb, your exercise, you can, no one's bothered. And if you want to socialize, the climbing gym is just a super friendly community. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done a ton of outdoor rock climbing, but I think one of my favorite places, even though it is scary, is Joshua Tree. I've done some climbing there and it's just such an amazing, beautiful desert environment from the, just everything about it physically alone is probably my favorite place to go but I haven't done a ton of outdoor climbing. I mainly climbing's more like my exercise. That's how I, yeah. I keep moving and feel good and more outdoor climbing will happen, but yeah, it's not been my main thing. So really the gym, I really do yeah. love going to the indoor climbing gym. No, I get it. Look, sometimes it's just, it, it's for me, I sh- speaking of like videos, I talked about the YouTube video about, mobility and resets and all that. But one of the things for me is just finding ways to work out and not just weightlifting, but like other ways to do cardio and endurance training that aren't just monotonous. And it feels like you're just like on a treadmill, on an exercise bike. So yeah, yeah, I'm all for anything that you can do that's joyful for you, that you can stick with for long periods of time. I'm all for it. Okay. Last but not least, number five, what's next for Evie, Ariel and Apex Cool Labs? Mm -hmm. I think what's next for Apex School Labs is what's next for me. That's for sure. I think this is an all-encompassing life decision, uh, <laughs> and yes. I certainly uh, enjoy it. So that that's great. Like Ariel explained, we are taking this hand-built prototype that we've been selling and turning that into a an actual scalable product. And so, what's next is really figuring out how we're going to, how we're going to launch that. Where is that, those areas of focus or that area of focus and getting ready for, I think a pretty exciting 2024. Yeah. And I think another big component is we don't have it lined up yet, but we're about to be in conversations with multiple people for doing true research with this device. So there's a lot of interesting research that's been done with palm cooling, just to give a flavor of two really interesting things that we've seen three 
that down regulation piece, we, we have some potential to actually do some synergistic research of down regulation breathing techniques with palm cooling. So that's nice. exciting. Yeah. Some of the, we work with some elite climbers and they've seen one of the really crazy things they've seen, which we haven't seen in the literature and we didn't really talk about is your forearms get insane pump, right? When yeah. you're doing climbing. Yeah. For and sure. they use muscle oxygen sensors on those. And the recovery mm. they've seen with palm cooling is exponentially faster than with oh, that. That's cool. In the yeah. forearms. So yeah. there's no research around that. That's really interesting. We'd love to do a bit of that. And we have some connections to people who specifically do research on recovery for firefighters. Okay. And so again, didn't talk much about it, but basically the very short story is the number one line of duty death for firefighters is cardiac arrest. That appears to be because during their activity, their blood viscosity increases. And so bringing that core body temperature down is huge for them and potentially has life-saving implications. So we already have some people who are using this in recovery, in actual, in active incident recovery for rehab. And we have the potential to work with a couple of the world's leading researchers on firefighting health and recovery. So that hasn't happened yet. That's something we really hope to get involved with. Yeah. That's awesome. Guys, this has been such an amazing show. It's been great to get to know you and learn more about your product. Where can my listeners find out more about you guys and all the great stuff that you're doing? Yeah, we are at apexcoolabs.com and we are Apex Cool Labs on Instagram, Twitter, X, and LinkedIn. All of the places, right? And yeah, Ariel, you're running all that, right? You're doing all the social media <laughs> campaigns, right? Yeah. You know, I used to do a lot of social media, actually, Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough. But I was also going to say we have a couple. We've tried to write a couple nice blog posts on our website, specifically like explaining palm cooling in the same kind of language, just simple, yep. easy to understand, accessible for people. So. Very cool. I'll make sure I get your guys' links in there. Again, if you're listening at home, I'm going to link to I'll try and find the Huberman Lab podcast we'll that we it. talked about. I'll link to some of the specific research articles that you guys sent me. As always, do your own research, dig in, learn more about this stuff. But I'm excited to see what you guys can come up with, too, with your own research and see what comes out of that. So, Evie, Ariel, again, thank you guys so much for coming on. This was really great. Thanks, Mike. All right, my friends, that does it for today's show with Evie Lyons and Ariel Paul from Apex Cool Labs. Really enjoyed it myself. I hope you did as well. I just like learning about anything physiology related, anything that might help enhance my recovery. And man, again, from reading the research on this so far, obviously we are very early days, but it seems promising. And so I'm always looking for ways to tighten the screws, improve my recovery, help my athletes get a little bit more out of their workouts. And so I'm definitely going to be looking into this more in the future and finding ways to implement it into my program. Also, they're just amazing to talk to, amazing human beings, Ariel does such a great job of breaking down the science. Trust me, if you go and you read these research papers, it's it's pretty rough going. But he does such a wonderful job of explaining it, and I really hope you enjoyed them coming on the show. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do me one small favor. If you are not already subscribed to the show, please go and do that right now. iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.